Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. The United States Senate was once considered the world's greatest deliberative body. As we witnessed in the first presidential debate last week, it's entirely possible that honest debate in America is actually dead. And why should we assume that the U.S. Senate is any different? But rather than coming to more in what once was, perhaps by summoning up the history of some of those senators who once infused the body with all that made it and the country great, we can almost by sheer force of will create an environment that might let it bloom once again. After all, isn't that why we study history, why we visit monuments and capitals and museums? So that we might take with us, in some primal and visceral way, the inspiration of the best that came before and integrated into doing good today. In part, this is what our guest, U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown, does in his new book, Desk 88. Sherrod Brown is the senior United States senator from Ohio. He was a former member of Congress from 1993 to 2003, Ohio's former Secretary of State, and he began his career as a member of the Ohio House of Representatives. And I would argue, at the risk of having the senator disagree with me before we start, that had he been the vice presidential candidate four years ago, the world would be a very different place today. It is my pleasure to welcome Senator Sherrod Brown to the Who, What, Why podcast. Senator, thanks so much for joining thank, us. I, I, thank you, Jeff. I, I don't agree with that, but thank you. In the <laughs> beginning of your, of your lead-in, I really liked about the way that the Senate could once was and could be again in a, in a after this election, and we can talk about that, but potentially can absolutely be a place where we actually enact legislation, not just confirm judges. And one of the things that, that you talk about in this history of these eight senators that, that shared Desk 88 is this sense of history. I talked to a, a very famous newscaster who's retired the other day who talked to me about being so dispirited by what he sees today. Talk about how this sense of history that you write about, the history of the Senate in particular, can inspire you from those moments of despair. Yeah, I uh, just finished uh, the the book. The book came out a year ago in hardback. The paperback came out last two weeks ago, and I I wrote a new chapter and afterward that I wrote kind of throughout the year, and the publisher wanted it in August. It was titled and and uh, and still comma hope, and I, I I have that because I think this election is 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 very well can start a new progressive era where government deals with the great issues of our time. Government deals with climate change. Government raises the minimum wage and the overtime rule, uh, allows Medic buy-in at Medicare at 65, a public option. Uh, government can be on the side of the public again. We can do the earned income tax credit. We can deal with racial disparities with a new president and a new Senate. And so I, I come into this partly by a study of history, partly by observing and more than observing this year, participating in this election, um, that, that there is a chance. And when progressives win, we do big things that last. And you can look at history of these eight senators that had my desk on the Senate floor, and you can see the big things that, that we as a country did led by by progressive movements. And I was going to say led by these senators, but it's really the progressive movements that push the Senate into doing the right thing. Talk about it in terms of movements, because there's also within this historical context a sense of the cycles of history, that, that certainly for the past 40, 45 years, we have been moving against government, that somehow government was the enemy, and that we, we stand arguably at the precipice right now 
of beginning to change that? Yeah, I think since that's a really that's a really good insight and good question, Jeff. Uh, since Reagan, the the who said government isn't the solution, it's the problem. Something that's not a direct quote, something like that. We are we are seeing during this pandemic the role of government. If if not for the six hundred dollars a week unemployment benefit that Trump and McConnell ended in August, but it was there from April until early August. But not for that. Um, some studies show that 12 million people, 12 million families would have fallen into poverty. That's $600. Not just saved those families, it saved the economy. I mean, the economy went pretty far south. It really obviously got hit. But imagine how much worse if if those those millions and millions in Ohio, 680,000 workers, hadn't had that unemployment check to spend at the local grocery store to buy clothes for their kids to take care of their families. Um, it would have been much worse for all business and the economy as a whole. So clearly we are seeing now during this pandemic the positive role of government and the, and the negative role of, of the government not stepping up. The government didn't step up and help us open schools safely. It's not federal government's not helping local governments. We're not doing what we should because McConnell and Trump have just said, no, we're done. We're not going to do anymore. And I think this election is going to it's going to reconcile that. It's going to answer that question: What is the role of government? And the role of government's important in our country. It gave us Medicare, Social Security, civil rights, voting rights, Head Start, um, Pell grants. Go down the list: good environmental laws when they're enforced. All of those things. Worker safety laws. Are you sensing among your Democratic colleagues and and among your constituents in Ohio that that you're in touch with, that there is this sense that that things are changing, that there is this new appreciation or at least a willingness to look at the importance of the role of government? Yeah, I I, I absolutely sense that. I think that Democrats are pretty much all in one place on, on a whole host of these issues that every single Democratic senator and every House member I know, I don't know every House member well, I know every senator, Democratic senator fairly well, um, every one of us understands the importance of climate change and how we have to address it. I mean, differences on solution in part, but not much difference uh, in terms of what we do on racial disparities, what we do on in income inequality. Uh, so I, I think that um, there, there's, and I, and I hear that from voters. I think it's pretty clear voters want change. There's a reason Trump's numbers have never gotten to 50% favorable. It's not just his personality and the fact he lies every day. It's certainly that. But it, it, it's more that his philosophy doesn't work for our country, this, you know, always help the rich. Uh, if, if you come to a fork in the road and it's either corporate interest or public interest, he chooses corporate interest every single time, uh, doesn't want to use, he wants to use government as a grifter only to enrich his family and his friends, as we see, um, not for the public interest. People are seeing that. And I think large numbers. That's why Trump can't get even close to 50 percent of the vote. Talk a little bit about the eight senators that, that you look at in Desk 88 and not in terms of, of the individual history of each one, because we certainly don't have time for that. But in a, a sense of how they might view where we are today. Well, I think that, um, that every one of these eight senators from Hugo Black, the first one I profiled, elected in 1926, later made his name as a fighting for labor law reform, collective bargaining, minimum wage, eight-hour workday, but then went on the Supreme Court and played a big role in Brown v. Board of Education as a Southerner, as an Alabaman, um, to George McGovern, to Bobby Kennedy and George McGovern. What, what they all did was understand, at least by at some point in their careers, they understood that government is a check on private power, that 
um, without activist government, you have uh, you have special interests run amok, and that's what we've seen. You suggested it for 40 years. We've seen it in different different degrees uh, since Reagan, and that you know it, it's uh, being a progressive is is. Uh, looking out for people that don't have power. It's being a voice for the voiceless. It's a check on private power, and it's it's uh, involvement of government in improving and lifting up people's lives. And, and, and Ralph Waldo Emerson talked about an ongoing historical battle between what he called the innovators and the conservators. The conservators just want to hold close the privilege and the power they have what he called innovators, we'd call progressives or liberals, want to um, speak for everyone, want a government for everyone, not just the privileged. This whole subject today of populism, how does that relate to what we're talking about? How do you incorporate that idea into this progressive worldview? Uh, populism comes in different strains in history, as you know, and uh, sometimes we see that we see the Donald Trump phony populism where he came to my state and convinced a number of I mean, he already had the Republican vote, but convinced a number of independents and a few Democratic workers that he was their champion. And that phony populism clearly never panned out the real. I mean, it, it, what his phony populism was, was was good language, but not ever coming down on the side of workers. Populism is to me. Um, populism is speaking for those without a voice. It's not much different from progressivism, um, and I, I, I call myself a progressive more than a populist, but I, I, I think you can conflate the two. But the danger always is that, pop, that, that, that people on the far right, authoritarians, have called themselves populist um, as if they're for the people, the, the root, obviously, P.O.P., uh, and um, that it, it's, 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 when, it's, when it's that appeal, it's always a phony populism uh, to use to to acquire and hold on to power, uh, but it's really not a looking out for the public at all. So I, 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 I the, the word populism is is really it's I don't think progressives use it very much anymore um, because of what the right wing has done with it and what Trump's done with it. Talk about how you came to Desk eighty eight with its remarkable history. Yeah, it's um, the Senate is as one might expect is much of the early early time in the Senate is is um, is done by by assigned by by um, uh, uh, seniority, and I came to the Senate with nine freshmen uh, in in 2007. So you get the the ten freshmen get the last choice on committees, essentially on office space in one of the office buildings, and on the Senate floor, and um, which I really didn't care much about. Being, I mean, I'm still there, right? But <laughs> I was there. But anyway, so there were ten desks left, and someone had told me that that senators carved their names in the bottom of their desk drawers. So as I was looking around I, for these last 10 desks, which we were choosing from among, I pulled out three or four drawers. I came across one. It said Hugo Black, Alabama, George McGovern, South Dakota, uh, Herbert Lehman, New York. And then it just said um, Kennedy, and, but not a first name or a state. So I went over to Ted, who sat, Ted Kennedy sat four or five seats. So I said, Ted, come here a second. Would you? And he walked over. I said, which brother's desk is this? And he said, well, it's got to be Bobby's because I have Jack's. So obviously he got first choice. He was his brother and 30 years in the Senate by then or 30 plus years. So um, I, I and so I just began to kind of look at the people who had carved this in their names in this desk drawer. My my wife, um, knowing that I think you can do any job better. I mean, you you do your job better in, in, a, in a show like this by looking at what your predecessors did, learning from them, sometimes rejecting, sometimes 
maybe copying a little, sometimes always learning from. And um, so I read, I for this book, I read probably 160 books about the Senate and progressivism. I mean, some were fiction, some were political fiction, some were straight history, some were biographies. And it, it just, I picked these eight because I know no particular reason for eight, but I picked these eight because they had that strain of progressivism running through their careers, sometimes uneven careers, but careers that that brought the country forward. Talk about William Proxmire, who's one of the eight that you talk about, who has a pretty remarkable career and, and, and not really given enough credit for it sometimes. Yeah, Proxmire was a, a very much a loner. He was the most, um, he, nobody nobody devoted a higher percentage of their of their work day to politics and governing than Proxmire did. He um, came from Wisconsin. He grew up in Chicago, son of a doctor. Uh, he, uh, in uh, his dad was actually a um, had as a patient Jack Benny, um, so his dad had the the sort of the the, the richest, the elite of, of Greater Chicago in his in his medical practice. Um, Proxmire moved to Wisconsin, started out and in, in, in started running for office. He lost three times for the Senate. He was um, he was going to challenge Joe McCarthy. Uh, the fourth time, and I'm sorry, he lost three times for governor, sorry. He was going to challenge Joe McCarthy for the Senate, and McCarthy died. He won the special election, uh, a bit of a fluke, and then he won every time after that, and he really took on the big guys. He was a, he was a progressive, but he was an uneven in his, he supported the Vietnam War too long. Um, he was not initially great on some progressive issues, but he ended up, he just by an unrelenting um, an unrelenting, focused, never-give-up attitude accomplished a lot of things, especially he was chairman of the Banking Committee, the Banking Housing Committee, which if we take the Senate, I will likely be chair next year. Uh, so I, I, I learned from him there. Um, he was a loner in the Senate. He didn't have friends much. He went back every weekend and shook hands. It, it just he would, he would go to Milwaukee County Stadium after a Milwaukee Braves game in the 50s and early 60s and stand out there and shake hands night after night after night. He, he was kind of always doing that and was unbeatable in his elections as a result because, you know, a huge percentage of Wisconsinites actually met him over time. There is a sense that all of these people, Proxmire, George McGovern, Bobby Kennedy, I mean, all the ones you detail, really appreciated the Senate and appreciated its ability to accomplish things that seems to be lost today. Well, I, I think that's right. I, I know, first of all, make sure listeners understand that this, uh, these were all white men. I acknowledge that. That's pretty much who I had to choose from. Um, there were no women, I don't think, that sat, at least that carved their names in Desk 88. Uh, and I assume that if someone were to write about Desk 88 50 years from now, they would write about progressive women and progressive uh, people of color. Um, the... the, um, the, the they all they all believe government could play a part. I mean, you can't really be a progressive if you don't believe government play, could play a positive role. And the, the Senate, um, the Senate had a, had a wider range of philosophies in those days. I mean, there were some pretty conservative Democrats when when some of these senators served, when most of them served, the the South was segregationist Democrats. And I'm glad they left the party. They joined the Republican Party clearly. But the but the Senate also had um, progressive Republicans like Ed Brooke and Jacob Javits and and Pierce, James Pearson of Kansas and people that were for civil rights. And I mean, you, you now see the Republican Senate is everybody's conservative with the exception of Murkowski. 
and some are really, really, really conservative. So it goes from from conservative to ultra conservative. There are there are no moderates left in the Senate except Lisa Murkowski, um, occasionally Susan Collins. But um, it's it's so it's it's hard to get bipartisan things done with with the understanding the role of government can be a positive force. There are a few like Todd Young and Jerry Moran that that occasionally come over our way that are decent, honorable people. But been in, in, in the age of Trump, they're they're all spineless. I mean, we know that. And history is going to look very unkindly on these senators that continue to enable this lying thug of a president. And finally, we're just about out of time, but talk about the degree to which all of this gives you inspiration and, and, and some optimism as to what the future might look like. Yeah, and I, I, um, it gives me optimism because I see what government at its best does. You know, we don't, progressives don't win very often, but we win, we do things that, that are big and they last for a long time. And I, I, you can look at the progressive eras of, of Roosevelt and, and I mentioned earlier, Social Security, collective bargaining, minimum wage, eight-hour workday, um, rural electrification. You can look at Johnson, voting rights, civil rights, Medicare, Medicaid, Equal Opportunity Act, Immigration, Higher Ed Act. And you can look at Obama with the Affordable Care Act. That was a, such a short-lived, I'm not sure you can call that a progressive era because it was so short-lived, but it tells me, and the reason I, I fit the, 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 the afterword that I wrote this summer um, and still hope is that, is that we, we know that um, if we win this year, we do big things that, that Americans will benefit from for decades. This is not a, we'll pass something, people will get, get something good for a few years or a few months, months or years, it will be long lasting because that's how progressives have done things historically. And that gives me the greatest hope of all. Senator Sherrod Brown. Senator, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks. Thanks for the good, good and great questions. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.